Well, let me just uh, first extend a welcome to my good friend, Michael Rhodes. Um, we are so excited to have you. Um, and this is a lot of my idea. So um, if you don't like what's happening here, blame me. But Michael is going to be a treat. Um, Michael and I have been friends for quite a while. We met in college, um, at Covenant College, and we've had many laughs and adventures along the way, a lot of backpacking. Yeah, and um, in fact, your wife played soccer with my wife. Yes, yeah. Um, and uh, our, our families are good friends. So uh, maybe I'll just let you introduce yourself a little bit to everyone before we get started. Yes, yeah, so my name's Michael, like Luke said. Uh, I lived in a dormitory at one point with Luke and Brandon back there at Covenant College, which uh, there are stories. I will not tell them up here, uh, but you can imagine. Or elsewhere. Or elsewhere. Uh, <laughs> but it was... It, it, There's no stories, actually. <laughs> All of that has been redacted. Uh, but, yeah, so I grew up in Memphis, Tennessee, where I live now with my... Yes, is there a Memphian in the house? Love it. How'd you get away? We don't usually let our native sons and daughters out. Um, so I grew up there in Memphis and then went to Covenant College uh, and studied community development there. Um, and after uh, that, spent two years living and working in Kenya as missionaries with my wife, Rebecca. Um, and then we've spent the last uh, eight, eight or nine years back in Memphis, uh, living in South Memphis, a, a struggling community there economically. And I worked for a nonprofit called Advance Memphis. For five years there, my wife was a public school teacher, uh, and now I teach at a Bible college called the Memphis Center for Urban Theological Studies, which targets typically adult students who are already in ministry and haven't had a chance to go to college, and we offer undergraduate Bible degrees in that context. My wife just came on staff at the as the children's ministry director at our church. She knows a lot about children because we have four of them aged six to one, uh, so uh, none of them are twins either. Six, four, two, and one. Uh, so I'll take any speaking gig that gets me out of the house. So that's why I'm here, even though I had to bring two of my boys with me. Um, so, yeah, that's a little bit about me and a little bit about what we've been doing. And some good names, too. Ooh. Uh, that's that's going to leave a mark. Uh, but not ruin your phone. It's too late. Um, that's an apology. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Um, uh, all right. Well, what's done is done. Um <laughs> My apologies. Um, bad one. Good names. Isaiah. Yeah, Isaiah. I have an Isaiah, an Ames, a Jubilee, uh, and then one is named Nova, which is sort of, she's the odd one out, but she's named after a good friend. Her middle name is Hope, so we tried to get all, all the biblical names in there. So very inundated with the Old Testament. <laughs> yes. Loves yeah, it. Sure. So um, let me just explain this a little bit. Um, Richard was going to be away today. Instead of taking the opportunity to fill the pulpit myself, um, I thought, well, this would be a really neat treat. We were about to start um, a Sunday school class covering a book that Michael has just recently put out called Practicing the King's Economy, Honoring Jesus and How We Work, Earn, Spend, Save, and Give. And he's co-authored this book with two really cool guys that I know and have studied under one of them myself. Um, and so, this felt like a really great um, transition or segue or introduction into that study itself. Um, so Michael is going to be um, preaching for us this morning, but also the idea of this interview is kind of to just uh, just talk about your book, talk about these principles that you've been living in and studying and worshiping in for many years. 
truly, and uh, for us to just kind of catch a vision for the kingdom as you have seen the kingdom playing out in Scripture. Uh, And I wonder, just real quick, if we might start by you explaining what is community development. You had mentioned that earlier. We both, you studied it, truly studied it. I took a course in it. But um, could you just explain what community development is and sort of set the stage for a lot of your, your thought? Yes, yeah, so I would say just a little bit more about my background. I grew up in a, um, a conservative Presbyterian church in Memphis, Second Presbyterian Church, a really wonderful congregation, gave me a real love for God's word. Uh, but somewhere along the way, they brought in Dr. John Perkins. Some of you may know him. He's an old uh, civil rights worker, an evangelical loves Jesus. He's almost 90 now. Um, but he really uh, launched a revolution in the evangelical church of talking about uh, economic and racial reconciliation. And the last time I heard him preach, he he quoted from 16 books of the Bible in 27 minutes. Uh, so as a young Presbyterian evangelical, increasingly in love with the Bible, to hear this older African-American statesman demonstrate from God's word that the gospel is good news. It's good news often to the poor, as Isaiah puts it in Isaiah 61, and Jesus quotes Isaiah in Luke 4. And that part had just been kind of left out in my upbringing, that the gospel is good news to the poor, that it addresses our spiritual needs, but it also addresses our physical and economic and social needs as well. And so I kind of caught that uh, disease from Dr. Perkins and studied Christian community development in college, which is the idea that God calls his people to holistically address poverty um, by pursuing healing in our relationships with with God, uh, with ourselves, with other people, and with the rest of the world and the systems of our world. And so in my context, uh, that's meant two things. In in Kenya, I spent two years working with uh, poor farmers and trying to help poor farmers, predominantly Christian farmers, work together to increase their economic viability Um, as a ministry of the gospel in partnership with the Anglican church there. And then in Memphis, it's meant being part of a um, Christian nonprofit uh, called Advance Memphis, uh, which is working in this one low-income community in South Memphis. It's um, 95% African-American. It's the worst-performing neighborhood in our city economically um, and has experienced a lot of discrimination and a lot of injustice and a lot of suffering and our work there as Christians was to, to help adults uh, find and flourish at work, find jobs and flourish at work, help people get their GEDs who dropped out of high school, help people uh, manage their money uh, more sustainably and biblically, and help people who had interest in it start small businesses. And in all of our, I was the director of training there for five years, and in all of our training, we were not only saying, hey, uh, God has designed you for work, here's how you find a job and get a job, but we were also saying, God wants to make all things new. That includes your relationship with him. That includes your relationship with your neighbor. That includes the suffering that you're experiencing in this sort of broken system. Um, And so that's that's what Christian community development has looked like for me. Uh, And then as I shifted into teaching at a Bible college, we're really trying to give our students a vision for community transformation so that they see their role as churches, often in low-income communities, as proclaiming the good news in word and in deed and finding ways to walk alongside their neighbors who are often struggling at work and struggling with their finances and, and struggling with various things. So that's a little bit about what community development has meant for us. That's and great. I should also say, and being part of a Presbyterian church 
in our neighborhood uh, that seeks to bring people together across economic and racial lines as a ministry of the gospel. And I'm under care of our session um, seeking ordination, but most of my time at the church has been as a deacon and a community group leader in our neighborhood. So figuring out what's it mean to lead Bible studies in a struggling neighborhood where uh, African-American and Caucasian folks are, are coming together and or, or how do we be a diaconate in a community with a lot of needs. And so that's kind of how it's fleshed out in a church context for me as well. That's great. Um, did you know that me and Wilson on our motorcycle trip, we stayed in John Perkins' living room one night? Are you kidding me? Yeah, no, that that's awesome. Had a big community party, and, and we were part that's, of it. it I'm fun. so jealous. Um, we're going to ask some questions uh, throughout this. If you would like to ask a question at any point about really anything, you certainly can. Um, I'll stop in maybe five minutes, and we'll, we'll take a couple questions. Um, but until then, um, I wonder if you could just talk to us a little bit about the difference that you see between the Kenyan church mm. and the American church and, and how that's important for us to understand. Yeah, so it's really interesting. The, this book um, grew out of some talks that I was giving about Advanced Memphis where I was working at predominantly suburban churches like the one that I grew up in. So basically, part of my job was to go out and try to get people to care about what we were doing in the city. The, the origins of the book kind of started there. But it became, uh, you know, we, Robbie and I wrote it with Brian Fickert, Dr. Brian Fickert, who's um, at Covenant College as a professor and founded this thing called the Chalmers Center and wrote this book called When Helping Hurts, which you may have seen. And the reason why they got into the book uh, was because, as Brian would put it, you know, they started this center to help the church help the poor, and they've been at it for about 20 years. And in places like Rwanda, they've helped hundreds of thousands of people working explicitly through churches. And in Chattanooga, as Brian would put it, we've helped about a dozen in that same period of time. And the thing that we've discovered together is that uh, the church in Kenya or Rwanda or other parts of the world, by and large, even if it is divided along tribal lines, that is ethnic lines, it is not divided along class lines. So when the, the church hears the word of God at a church in Kenya, they hear its connection to economic poverty because their members are experiencing that on a day-to-day -day basis. So when God says, like, love your economically poor neighbor, your economically poor neighbor is in the pew next to you, or you are the economically poor neighbor and you're a member of the worshiping congregation. Whereas in America... Uh, the church has largely followed society in dividing along class lines. And even if you look at statistically, uh, Americans uh, 50 years ago were much more likely to live in mixed income neighborhoods. And now most Americans live in either affluent neighborhoods or poor neighborhoods. So as a society, we're more divided along class lines. And the gap between those extremes is increasing. And the church has 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 been complicit in that. And so what that means is that, like the church that I grew up in, it's hard for us to talk about racial justice or reconciliation or economic reconciliation because none of those people are there. We rep represent just like one sliver of the body of Christ. And that means a lot of the problems in how we love our neighbor is just that certain of our neighbors aren't literally our neighbors. We don't know who they are. We don't have relationships with them. And that makes the work much more difficult. And this book kind of addresses some of that and so I think that's why the Chalmers Center got so excited about it, because as an organization, they're saying, how do we help churches uh, that are isolated from the poor figure out what the gospel that is good news for the poor means? Um, that's great. Thanks. 
Um, any questions so far? We'll tarry on. So uh, here we are. We're exit four. No, exit eight. I live off exit four. Um, we are in a suburban context. Um, and uh, judging by our immediate vicinity, we are not surrounded by a lot of the lower economic uh, demographics of our city. So how would you recommend uh, or even just, uh, you know, whiteboard with us about how do we care for the marginalized in our community when it's situationally, we're just not right there in that, that place? Yeah, so I think the, well, to, if, I, if, if I can, if I could explain a little bit more about where the book came from, I think it'll get uh, there. So one thing that occurred to me while I was working at Advance is, you know, we were helping people start, you know, find jobs, helping people start small businesses, helping people to manage their money differently, helping people to go on to higher education or whatever. And then I'm going out to, you know, my second pres where I grew up and uh, independent pres, uh, you know, down the street and saying, okay, we need you guys to care. And somewhere along the way, it occurred to me that, um, the church could write Advanced Memphis, this organization that I was working for, a check for $4 trillion. And that would be great. And if you guys have $4 trillion, I'm sure they'll take it. And I'd love to get a slice, too, for my work. But if there weren't people who were willing to say at their workplace, we ought to hire a graduate of an Advanced Memphis job training program who has a felony, then we didn't have anything to do with that $4 trillion. Like our model depended on people living differently in the way that they worked in their normal middle-class space, right? Um, if we, we could help people start small businesses, but if we didn't have people who were willing to say, yeah, I know that guy who's trying to start a side hustle lawn business is a Christian now and loves Jesus and is trying to provide for his family and create jobs in his community, but he's also a career violent felon. Uh, if we didn't have people who were willing to say, I'll give him a shot, to cut my lawn or provide lawn care services for our business. We didn't have a model. Our model depended on people living differently, not just in what they gave, but in the way that they worked, in the way that they spent money, in the way that they invested money. And as I sort of started seeing that, I started realizing that in the church, pretty much the only thing we were talking about was charitable giving. In other words, the, the, the most common message that we hear about economic issues in the church is make as much as you can and give it all away, right? Which is really good. Please do that. But even if you do do that, uh, God's word, we think, and the needs of our neighbor demand more than that. So in the Old Testament, economic mercy doesn't begin with how you give away uh, leftovers from your field. It begins with who works in your field, it begins with who gets a zero interest loan to help them in their field. It begins with how you compensate the people who work for you. And then it also includes what you do with the profit from your business. And, and, and if it required that sort of holistic thinking in Israel, we thought it might require that kind of holistic thinking in 21st century America. And so the cash value of that for you all, I think, is that a lot of times when folks like me, who've kind of been in sort of the poverty alleviating work, come to a church like this, we give you one of two things. We either say, write us really, really big checks, or we say, quit doing what you're doing and come live next door to me in South Memphis and run a nonprofit. 
And we need people to write really big checks. We need some people to come move next door to us in South Memphis and start nonprofits. But we also need a ton of people to figure out how to partner with the poor, poor neighbors, poor churches, and the parachurch ministries that serve them in the spaces that you currently inhabit as employees, as employers, as households that spend money and invest money. And so uh, hopefully in this conversation, hopefully some this morning uh, in the preaching, hopefully if you read the book, you're going to find a million ways that right where you are, you could figure out how to bend your social and economic life towards those who are poor right here in this community. Um, and, and maybe as a result of that, some of you would say, we're going to live in a different place and we're going to do different work. But hopefully an awful lot of you would say, staying right where we are, doing the work that we're doing differently, we're going to bless our community. Yeah, so that, that sounds a little bit like the kingdom being brought near. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I think we typically figure out like, okay, I do this ministry. Yeah. I do um, these days I serve in these capacities. Yeah. But it sounds like what you're suggesting is a little bit more fluid, all-pervasive yeah. way of thinking about how do we do kingdom life in mm-hmm. a different way. Yeah, yeah. And so one way to describe the book and and my work is to try to help people think through what whole life economic discipleship would look like. Whole life economic discipleship. And again, I think for the most part in the church, we've gotten kind of like um, good financial stewardship worldly stewardship, and then we sprinkle some baptismal water on that, and that's how you, you know, manage your life, and then give big checks, and we, we kind of want to say, what's the whole, whole, whole life look like moving towards God's kingdom? And so, in the book, we, we talk about a couple different major shifts, um, and one of those shifts is, and again, I'll talk about this a little bit later on, but one of those big shifts is when in the church, when we think about caring for the poor, the primary paradigm that we bring to that work is the soup kitchen. So when we think about caring for the poor, we basically think, okay, there's a whole bunch of people who need soup, let's get them on one side of the room, and there's a whole bunch of people who've got soup, let's get them on the other side of the room, and we can solve this problem if we can get the soup havers to scoop their soup into the empty bowls of the soup needers, right? And that kind of relief work is important and it has its place, But as a metaphor, it falls short of what God gives us in his word. We think a better picture is not the soup kitchen where everybody gets fed, but the potluck where everybody brings a plate. In other words, in God's economy, the end goal isn't that everybody has enough soup to eat. God's economy aims at a party in which everyone gives gifts to everyone else and everyone receives gifts from everyone else. And if that's the case... That means the problem isn't just that we haven't given enough of our soup away, right, economically speaking. It's that uh, the right people aren't at our table. Our tables, corporately and individually, don't reflect the diversity of God's people, economically and socially. It's that some of our neighbors struggle to bring their best plate to the party because they're suffering from PTSD or they've never been able to have a job or they dropped out of high school or they're stuck in a dysfunctional economic system. And so if we want them bringing their best plate to the potluck, we're going to have to think about what would need to change in our life and their life to help them do that. The whole thing kind of gets reimagined through that lens. And we've really found that that's a really helpful way of capturing what we're talking about. Um, And I'll stop there instead of rambling on. (laughs) I like the ramble. Um, Well, if you have questions, just go ahead and throw up a hand. Yeah, Tim. 
Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. So the question is, the question is, uh, the book is about practicing the king's economy, and the first chapter is worship, and and we make the claim in the, almost the first pages of the book that both worship and idolatry are often economic issues. They're not exclusively economic issues, but they are often economic issues. So on the one hand, worship is an economic issue because God has designed us to uh, offer our whole lives to him in worship, right? Um, uh, what's the line from the Heidelberg Catechism? What's your only hope in life? That my life is not my own, right? And so worship is all of life aimed at God, including our economic lives. And uh, Eugene Peterson has this great line that generosity is the air that we breathe as humans, right? Uh, it's, it's what we were designed for. When we give to God and neighbor, we're living out our purpose as people made in his image. But economics is also, idolatry is also an economic issue because uh, uh, ec- economics presents a perennial temptation to idolatry for God's people. So if you think about, for instance, like in First Kings, when you read about First Kings and you get to some of those very best felt board stories for the kings, you know, with Elijah, where there's like, you know, the, the birds are bringing him food and there's fire falling from heaven. It's all these really like exciting stories in First Kings. And the whole story operates around this idea that Israelites are worshiping Baal. And when I was growing up, I assumed that the Israelites worshiped Baal because like they saw a Baal statue and they're like, ooh, that's pretty. That's prettier than anything we've got in our temple. Let's go that way. Or maybe like somebody knocked on their door and was like, hey, you know, we're from the church of Baal down the street and we want to introduce you to the four spiritual laws of Baal. Uh, or maybe they went to like an apologetics conference and the Baal guys had better arguments. You know, that's sort of the, but that's not it. You see, in Israel, the neighborhoods around Israel who worship Baal, his name was Baal, the rider on the storm clouds. And so what Baal does, the neighbors would say, is when Baal shows up, the rain comes, the rivers run with oil, the cows get fat, your wives don't miscarry. So if you're this like poor peasant farmer living in Israel, and uh, Ahab marries Jezebel from, from Baal territory, and she brings with her the rider on the storm clouds, like it behooves you to get to know him, right? Because you need the rain. And so for Israel, idolatry is about which God can deliver the economic goods. And they become a people willing to add worship of Baal alongside worship of the Lord because Baal promises to give them something they don't believe God can give them. And that's the thought world that Jesus is talking in when he shows up and says, you cannot serve God and money, right? He's saying that money can be an idol that we worship like Baal, worship like a God to get what we want and that we do not believe that the Lord will give us. And so in the New Testament, you get these crazy lines that we skate past, like greed is idolatry, says Paul. Now think about a Jew hearing that, for whom idolatry is like the big kahuna sin. What makes us Jews is that we don't commit idolatry. To commit idolatry is simply not to be a part of the people of God. And Paul's saying, here in the church, greed is that sin. 
later in 1 Timothy, you know, the love of money is a temptation and a trap. It's led people away from the faith. It's pierced them with many griefs. Why? Because money, power, economic power uh, promises to give us life, and so we give it what we owe God, and it, it destroys us. And so we think that you can't talk about care for the poor or a healthy way of economic life comprised of work and rest or of an economy that's good for the created world or of an economy that's good for low wage. You can't talk about any of that stuff if you don't start by saying, before we get to any of that, we've got a problem, which is that too often our worship has been co-opted by idolatry to economics and to a certain way of economic life. Thank you for asking that question. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, great question. So the question is, a lot of us work for the military, so we don't have uh, autonomy over hiring practices. Um, and I would say a couple things. One is, so, so part of the reason that we, in the opening chapter, we basically say God's kingdom confronts us, right, and calls us to live as citizens of his kingdom. But we've been trained as citizens of another kingdom, right, of another culture and community. And so we've got to learn and become people. We have to become disciples of this kingdom. And we use a metaphor, uh, which is, which is, I, I thought about Luke when I was writing this. You know, imagine for a second that you're an NFL lineman, okay? So you weigh 450 pounds. Uh, you can beat me to the doorway in a foot race. Uh, you can like lift, you could squat all of us, you know? You're like one of the top athletes on the planet, right? And the way you get that way is you have a very specific training regime, a diet and exercise regime, a coach who helps you become this machine who's very, very talented at this one game. And then imagine one day you're in the locker room and the coach comes in and says, yeah, uh, we're shutting down the NFL. From now on, it's triathlons. So as of today, you're all triathletes. Well, you're going to have some hurdles trying to figure out what to do on the bike for 100-plus miles and that swim and that 26-mile run. And if you're ever going to do it, even though you're a top athlete, even though you've been exercising and training, if you're ever going to become a triathlete, you're going to have to appropriate a new training regime, different drills, a different fitness and exercise deal. And your first workout as a triathlete is going to look terrible. Even though you're one of the top athletes in the world, your first workout is going to look terrible. It's going to look like me in the gym on January 3rd, you know? Uh, and the idea is if we begin to develop the disciplines as a triathlete will eventually become people more capable of participating. So we think that if we've been discipled by the world and God says, by what my son has, do, has done, I have transferred you from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, and that now discipleship is about learning how to live in light of that reality, We've, we're really good at the NFL. We've got to learn what it's like to be triathletes. And so the idea of practicing the king's economy is how do we get on the road and begin to adopt new disciplines and habits to help us take baby steps towards living as citizens in God's kingdom in our economic lives. I say all of that to say this. I have no idea 
what it would look like in its fullness for a church like this doing the important work of coming alongside military families to live these things out. I don't think anybody does. And, and, and our goal is to give people sort of the first kind of baby steps around the office of this way of thinking so that hopefully you guys figure out what does it look like to apply this in this very unique context. Having said all that, I'd say two things. Uh, one is, um, if the goal of our economic lives is love God, love neighbor, and so the goal of our economic lives is a potluck where we worship God and everybody brings a plate, that means there's a real relational component to this. And my hunch would be that in a transient military context with people returning from combat, there are a lot of people who are lonely. There are a lot of people who are disconnected. A lot of people who are far away from family. And that those stresses and struggles for some portion of people plays out in struggles in their economic life. And so part of the work is non-economic, right? It's making sure we're connecting with those people, creating spaces of belonging for those people, and then figuring out where are they confronting these challenges. Now, on the hiring piece, the good news is the hiring thing is something that you can do at home and in your church. So um, we're really excited about the gleaning laws in the book. We talk about how in the gleaning laws, uh, business owners leave profits in the field to create opportunities for immigrants and orphans and widows like Ruth to work and provide for themselves. So the idea is that we can leave some of our excess in the field to create opportunities for work. And there are churches doing that. So for instance, uh, there's a very, very poor church in my neighborhood uh, who has a heroic pastor, one of my heroes. And the last time I was there, he said, you know what? Our church has to pay for food sometimes. We have to pay somebody to clean the carpet sometimes. We have to pay for people to guard the building sometimes. And all those people are low-income people who live right here. That's the lady who we hire when we've got a, a food who caters the food. That's the person who takes care of the lawn. That's, so this church spends some money, right? And you could strategically figure out how to spend that money with people who've come to the diaconate and said, hey, I need help, uh, with people who have been discharged from service and are looking for work, uh, you could find out if there are struggling startup businesses started by people of color or people from low-income backgrounds who often struggle to get their foot in the door and say, hey, oh, you're starting a commercial cleaning business? We use that service from time to time. And as a church, spend money on that sort of thing. Uh, And in your home, uh, some, I I don't know uh, Clarksville very well, but, but if you have a chamber of commerce in, in, in Clarksville. Somebody is figuring out how do we help start people start businesses, and somebody's office is to like increase minority contracts and business ownership among struggling people. If you were to find out who those people were and say, how do we get to know those folks? And if we've got some of those skills, maybe offer some mentoring and then figure out how to give them some of their first shots. That's something that most families can do. And in the book, we actually talk about how investing in entrepreneurs is a strategy here. And you can, um, just this afternoon on your cell phone, go to kiva, K-I-V-A dot org. And you can make a zero interest loan for a small business owner for as little as $25. So yesterday on my way here, I checked my email and I got $3 <laughs> repaid to me from a, a, a friends who are starting a bakery to try to hire homeless people. And I lent them $25, which a bunch of people did, and that made up $10,000. And as they repay that zero interest loan, I get repaid. 
So there's strategies that we can take right where we are. Uh, and, and I hope that if you uh, read the book and encounter some of these things, that, that it becomes very plausible for you in your own life. That's really helpful. I want to talk to you or ask you about two concepts, yeah. efficiency and comfort. And I think both are in their own way an idol of the American church, of my own heart, yes. my personal yes. heart. Okay. So I want to ask you about efficiency. You talk about how do, how do we do community development? How do we empower? How do yeah. we do the incarnational ministry and bring people to a place where we're not distributing, but we're using their gifts, encouraging them to be the body of Christ, live out of how God has create, created them. So um, efficiency. Yeah. If we were to um, live our own lives in our own homes and in our church in a way that empowers some folks who could do some of these tasks, yeah. the yard work, um, the interior cleaning, um, name the thing, um, but perhaps have not been trained in those things yeah. and are not as proficient and efficient yeah. as some companies that we could hire. Yeah. I just acknowledge in my own heart, that's a struggle for me. Right. I like efficiency. I right. like people who are professional and competent. Right. Well, and, you know, if you take efficiency, uh, this is the sorts of things that get me chased out. But if you take efficiency, which is a cultural concept, and you get some baptismal water and you sprinkle it on there, you can talk about stewardship, right? And a lot of the ways that we talk about stewardship is borrowed from a culture that's obsessed with efficiency. So, you know, my primary uh, vocation right now is as a Bible teacher, right? So what I spend time doing is studying these obscure Old Testament texts and talking about them. And one thing that struck me over time, you know, we're working with these guys who either coming out of incarceration or they've never worked before or they have really low educational attainment, trying to get Christians to hire them. And while we're doing that work, I'm studying you know, the gleaning laws. I have a daughter named Jubilee. That should give you a hint at one of my favorite Bible passages. Uh, and I started looking at these things. And also, we wrote this book with a Yale-trained economist, Brian Ficker. So he's like, you know, he's got a lot of thoughts on what sorts of economic systems are best. And that's, if you work with poor people, you're going to get a lot of that, right? Okay, is it capitalism? Is it socialism? And in our book and in my professional life, we have just sort of skated that question. We're saying we're not going to talk about that. What we're going to talk about is how you can be obedient to God in the system that we have. Um, and, but when you look at like something like the Gleaning Laws or, or the Year of Jubilee, uh, which I like to refer to as the time when God wrote the HR manual for businesses in his community, right? Um, they just, if, if like just giving stuff away is over here and like a totally like free market efficiency hyper uh, kind of competitive system is over here, they just do something different, right? So the gleaning laws take place on the family farm. There's nothing to harvest unless people don't think about what it looks like to be an excellent farmer to save seeds from the previous year, to plant, to care for the land, to steward the land. Unless this business doesn't work, if it, unless it works like a business, there's nothing to harvest, right? But then, you know, at the end of the year, it would be more efficient to say, okay, we've got some really good farmers. Just have them maximize those profits, harvest the best, and then we'll just redistribute the leftovers efficiently. And, and the Bible sometimes has them do that. But it also says, do something inefficient. Leave some profits in the field, 
Why? So that the orphan, the immigrant, the stranger, uh, the, the poor can provide for themselves through their own work, right? And that's less efficient, right? Or take the year of Jubilee. You know, it would be best, economically speaking, to not every 50 years hit the reset button on the land distribution, right? The year of Jubilee says the world works best when everyone sits under their own vine and fig tree, when everyone can provide for themselves and have an economic stake in the community. God gives his people an economic stake in the community. Injustice, poor decision-making, natural disaster will mess all that up. And every 50 years, you kind of reset things. And, and people sometimes miss. That means for 49 years, you're buying and selling like usual, right? There's a lot of time where the economy needs to work and flourish, and there's a concern for excellence and efficiency. But there's a limit to that, and God gets in his people's business to make sure that this whole thing is oriented uh, not to my own welfare, but to the welfare of my family and the community. And so I just think it's a balance. I think it's a balance where we're constantly saying uh, we have need to steward our resources well, but we also have to look for ways to intentionally orient our economic lives towards the good of others. And this means, if, if, you, get, if you drink this Kool-Aid, folks, it means that you find yourself with strange friends and in strange conversations. So I watched my boss, who's been working with job seekers in a, in a neighborhood where seven out of 10 adults are not working. So my neighborhood, seven out of 10 adults are not working. My boss is a goofy little white guy who's been working there for 20 years. And I watched him uh, advocate for people with violent criminal records to go to work. And I watched employers come back and say, hey, man, Jim is not doing well. We don't, need to do we don't know what to do. And my boss would be like, fire him. You got to fire him. You got to fire him and send him back to us so we can help him be a real contributor and not a charity case in your, employ in your employment. And it, for me, it means I've had people, like the guy who cuts my lawn now, um, who, uh, you know, there's a great example of efficiency. Uh, believe it or not, I am not in the economic class that should be paying people to cut my lawn. <laughs> if I was thinking about efficiency, all else equal, I'd be cutting my own darn lawn. But I live in a neighborhood where seven out of 10 people are unemployed, and I know people starting lawn care businesses, and so we made a commitment. Well, the guy who does it now is incredible. I mean, he's one of my heroes. He's amazing. I could never cut the lawn that well. But, like, have I fired other guys from cutting the lawn? Yeah. The last time I hired one of my friends uh, to fix the sink, he totally hustled me. And the next time he sits down long enough for me to talk about him, I am going to say, not cool, man. This was too inefficient, right? You're getting fired, right? So we just have to kind of be in the middle of this complexity, this gray area that does not feel comfortable. And when business people get into this space, they don't always like it at first because it, it used to be black and white and now it's gray. And when nonprofit people get into the space, we're not just giving people stuff, you know, it, they don't like it because it used to be black and white and now it's gray. But if you think about the gleaning laws, what happens when you embody them? You get a Boaz and you get a Ruth, right? You get Ruth, the poor widow immigrant from the wrong tribe becoming a contributor in the Israelite neighborhood through her own work and her own service, her own plate that she brings to potluck. And you get Boaz, who because he obeys the gleaning laws, he's in the field with Ruth. They're in the same place, working together. And that ends up pretty well for the two of them, you know? That's a better way of life for the Ruth and Boaz clan. 
But it happens because they're kind of engaging this uncomfortable gray in-between space. I don't know if that answers your question. That's how I'd, I'd try. I think it sure does. And you've, you've used the word uncomfortable. Uh, and I think everything you're saying sounds kind of uncomfortable. Um, just the idea of racial reconciliation mm. is uncomfortable. Yeah. Uh, the idea of living our lives in a, a way that reflects the king's economy, um, living off of, uh, and in, in fact, inviting uh, dependency on the Lord, um, reflecting on what is it to... Um, to live off of daily bread? What is it to mm. live off of manna? Yeah. Um, how do we invite that dependency? All that's really uncomfortable. Yeah. Suburbia, in my suburbia, where I live, in my heart, wants comfort. Yeah. I do not want that kind of gray tension yeah. discomfort yeah. because, man, I, I like to know what's ahead of me. I like some control in my life. That sounds really hard. Yeah, so I just want to, I want to say this about that. Um, our book has a ton of Bible in it. And uh, in fact, we have six themes that we think should guide your economic life, worship, community, work, equity, creation, care, and rest. These are like six keys, we say, to the King Jesus economy from Scripture. And we trace each one of those themes through the Bible in one chapter. And then the next chapter, we tell you stories about people who are living it out in their economic life, at church, and in their home. And we give you some disciplines to start doing it in your own life. And, you know, the truth is a lot of people um, would have liked a book with a lot less Bible in it. Uh, and sometimes when we were debating that, I just had to say, I'm a Bible teacher. I don't want to write that other book. I want to write the book with all the Bible in it, you know. Um, but the reason why there's so much Bible in it for me is, you know, um, one theologian said that when we read the Bible, when we really read it, we encounter this strange new world, right? And if you really read the Bible, it's like walking through the wardrobe in the Chronicles of Narnia, and all of a sudden animals talk, right? And there's this lion who's dying on the stone table, and there's all this crazy stuff, you know? And you're like, this is awesome, but it's not what my world is like. And you and I live every day, and I live every day. I wake up every day, and I think, how is there this much money coming in and this much money in the bank account, right? Like, how are all these children so little and driving up the grocery bill so much, you know? How in the world are we going to make good on these financial? You know, that's the world I live in. And then I walk into the world of the Bible, and there's Jesus, and he's like, look at the birds there. I'm like, what about the birds of the air? I see the birds. That doesn't do anything about the college fund. Like, what are you talking about, Right? And we come to the Jubilee, and we're like, what do you mean? But remember, the Jubilee, okay, the Jubilee, right, which is the most controversial piece of Bible. One Bible scholar says, I get more questions about the year of Jubilee actually happening than about the bodily resurrection, which means that in America, it makes more sense to us that somebody got up from the dead than that a bunch of property owners would give up their property. Okay, just think about that, right? That's... <laughs> That says something. But when we think about that, if you're like me, let's real talk. I grew up in a super affluent family, right? I, I have economic resources that have been passed down to me from the hard work of my previous generations, right? I mean, that's my life. And so if you just say, the Jubilee means you gotta give up some stuff. It's like, oh, that feels like bad news. Go read Leviticus 25. On the Day of Atonement, the day when you all put your collective sins on the head of the goat and send him into the wilderness, on the day when we say, our God 
forgives us for our sins instead of smiting us. We deserve smiting (laughs) and we get grace. On that day, every 50 years, you also blow a trumpet and say, our economic sins are also forgiven. And everybody gets a fresh start. And to commemorate this, we have a party for an entire year and nobody has to work and it's just like feasting and song, right? That sounds like really good news for everybody, right? And I think what God is saying is this stuff you hear in these texts, a command that sounds like bad news. I'm inviting you into a different world that's the best news you could possibly imagine, right? Think about the disciples. Okay, uh, hey man, give all your goods to the poor, Jesus says. And they're like, he's like, nah, I ain't with that. And then the disciples are like, you know, who can be saved? It's harder for a rich man to get to the camp, you know. And we're like, God, ah, it sounds terrible because we're the rich man and woman so often. And then at the end, Jesus says, anybody who gives up their way of life and follows me, I'm translating here for you because uh, it's, it's a little bit obscure to us what's going on. But what, he, what he's saying is, who gives up their way of life, who opens their hands and let go, will be welcomed into a family, a community, a potluck, where you will receive a hundredfold brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers and economic resources. In other words, if you let go of this that you're clinging to, I'm gonna welcome you into a community that's good news for everybody. There's good news for everybody, right? Because if you're in that Acts 2 church where when someone's in need, someone else has given up what they've got to help them out, that sounds like bad news if you're the guy with the land. But why do we care so much about clinging to the land? It's because we're afraid, we feel insecure, we feel unprovided for. And God's saying, I'm creating a community where you don't have to live like that, where you don't have to be afraid because I take care of my people. And often I take care of my people through my people. And so you can be free from fear to be the means that God uses to take care of the poor because there will be people there to take care of you when you're on hard times. And so we, 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 the huge danger in writing a book like this and of speaking like this, we're trying to say all of us need to do more and give up more and lay down our idols is to miss that all of this for God is good news. And guys, Rebecca and I and Robbie and Chrissy, uh, and Brian and Jill Ficker, like we're all babies and infants in this work and we've not arrived and we're just getting started and figuring out what the king's economy means. But I can say very clearly, and if my wife and our four small children were here, they would say very clearly, every little baby step we've taken in this way of life has been a gift to us. It's been a joy to us. The gift of the potluck when we glimpse it is so much better, right? Than the, idols, than the idols that our idol factory hearts create. So I just think it's really important to ground all this in God's word, not just because it's where God tells us what to do and all that, but it's because where we get the bigger picture. And the bigger picture is that God wants to, to, to welcome you into a wonderful kingdom where a wonderful king gives wonderful gifts to his people. And wherever that feels painful, it's like the pain of like a physical therapist who's like, making you do those painful exercises so that you can be free of pain. That's great. We have time for probably a question or two, and then we're going to break for more coffee. By the way, Robbie, 
who wrote, co-wrote the book, they, in the process of writing this book, uh, started buying coffee from an organization that hires refugees. That's why they exist as a coffee company. But as he was telling that story, he referred to like this being a really difficult, costly, sacrificial decision because in their church, coffee is the third sacrament. And it's like, amen. <laughs> so you got one. I don't know if we have the second, but we're going to get the third. Well, while you're thinking of questions, um, there, there is in no way uh, the intention of this to be about book sales. I do have some books up here that you can take home and read. We're going to be walking through this during Sunday school for the next six weeks. Um, we're going we're gonna to go over uh, two chapters at a time because uh, the, the book is divided according to two sections at a time. Yeah. Um, and we will teach the class as if you've not read it. But we want you to read it because you can interact with it more and it will be more fun. Um, so if you'd like one of those books, take one. You can pay me back. And um, uh, questions? Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Wonderful. Is that biblical seminary? Yeah. This is a great comment and question there about like the role of like expectations as we're empowering people for economic life that sometimes people do get fired and whatever. And, um, you know, for me as a child of an upper middle class community and church, uh, what I've come to realize working with, with people from a community of concentrated poverty, which is a unique thing. Some people are poor and this is their first generation to be poor. It's a, it's a catastrophe that's happened. Like in my neighborhood, there was two large government housing projects. So the design was that only poor people lived in our neighborhood, which creates its own unique challenges. Um, but, you know, what I tell folks is, hey, you didn't learn to ride a bike without falling down a few times. And you're not going to learn to go from work not being a part of your life to work being a functional, flourishing part of your life without falling down a few times. And so what that means is that at advance, over time, I saw guys who'd Come to a job training program, which we designed with the Chalmers Center. It's called Work Life, if you're interested. Uh, come to a job training program, go to work, uh, get fired, or get laid off, or whatever. And we'd come back and coach them and give them another shot. And that process, some people that I would have labeled, oh, they just don't want to work, were just in the process of learning to believe and act on the fact that work could really be a part of their life long term. And so when we get in with people, we start seeing the complexity. By the way, this is one of the reasons why we make no public policy recommendations in the book, 
because we think that the public policy extremes that you hear on whatever your favorite news source are are just just like detached from the reality on the ground. Like if I can be honest for a minute, when I hear conservatives, political conservatives talking like, you know, the problem is just choice and personal volition and decision making, I want to say, well, do you know about my friend who had a misdemeanor who went to work for a business through a staffing service, worked there for six months, loved his job, and when he, his manager invited him to come on permanent because his manager trusted him and thought it was great at his job, then the insurance company said, no, because you have a misdemeanor. Not only can we not hire you on permanent, we're going to fire you, right? Does your conservative guy know about that? Does he know about the statistic that says that a resume is 50% less likely to receive a callback if it's got uh, uh, Javon at the top than Brandon? Does your, does your conservative friend know about that? Like, there's some other things going on that you're going to encounter when you get into this work. And then when I hear people on the left say, like, if we just got rid of these structures, everything would be peachy, I'm like, hey, man, have you ever met somebody who had a decent job and quit when they got their tax return? Have you ever met somebody who, you know, uh, walked off their job because someone looked at them funny? Like, there's a lot of stuff going on. It's complex. And we get in the mud guided by like not simply a charity mentality or not simply a cutthroat economic mentality and try to walk with people over time, we're going to find you need to be invited to change and I need to be invited to change and we need to be invited to change and we're in that process. And absolutely, the process won't work unless people are being invited and empowered and equipped to meet, to become real contributors. They have to really bring a plate. You know, we really need the plate for the potluck. So I think it's a great point. And I love that you're in Philly doing that work. It's awesome. Well, thank you for being here. Uh, this has been a lot of fun. Uh, we're going to take a break until worship. So uh, books here, roads here, <laughs> worship, 15 minutes.